morning. Today's reading is from Micah 5, 2 through 6, and 6, 6 through 8. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with your old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you remain standing? We'll pray together. We are those, we have to remain together. We're those who stayed together in the city during Christmas time. So we're going to pray. Jesus is amongst us. His Holy Spirit is here to speak to us. I want to invite you just to pause. Take some deep breaths. Spirit of God in Genesis is known as the breath of God. Just give thanks. That you have a heart that is beating on its own. Blood flowing through your body. Soul is alive. God hears your prayer. And offer any burden that you may have brought in here to him now. And if you're doubting that he is amongst us and with you or for you, just speak that now to him. And I invite you to say the words, I believe, help my unbelief. Fill us now, dear God, as we look at this good news that you proclaim through a prophet in a very difficult time. We consider those amongst us who during the holiday season are experiencing times of difficulty and pain as well. And those who are experiencing moments of pleasure and joy, all of us together we say you are Lord and we ask that you would speak to us now, Holy Spirit, you would move me out of the way and this would be good news that our souls receive like water in a desert. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we are in our final sermon in the series that we've called uh, Songs in the Minor Key. We've been looking at uh, the minor prophets in the Old Testament and what they have to say about the coming Messiah, Christ before the manger. And uh, whether you're aware of it or not, this Friday, the final Star Wars movie released. And uh, some of you are aware and some of you don't care. 
If you were raised on Star Wars like I was, it's a big deal. In fact, one author that I follow on social media posted an article with the caption that read, why I rejected religion and chose to raise my son on Star Wars. And in his post, he basically says that both religion and Star Wars are both myths. myths. And if he was gonna choose a myth uh, that has principles to raise children by, Star Wars is a pretty good myth. Star Wars is a good story. Um, And he's not entirely incorrect because the word myth simply means sacred stories of a culture that interpret the human condition, the human story, good and evil, the meaning of suffering, human origins, animals, cultures, traditions, the meaning of life and death, afterlife, etc. So those stories, a myth can be true and it could be not true. And that's where the Bible, particularly Micah chapter five, separates itself from Star Wars. Now, I was raised on Star Wars, and I agree with the fact that there are great principles in Star Wars. Yoda's phrase, do or do not, there is no try, man, that's worth putting on a coffee mug. It's worth living by. I use that as a parent, actually. Do or do not, make your bed or not, there's no try. Just do it. But there's no historical evidence that Luke Skywalker actually lived in this world. In fact, we know it's a fictional myth, not true, because we know the guy who wrote it. He just bought property in the town that I moved from in California. Like he's still alive and he made these stories up. We know this. Jesus, on the other hand, was reported to have lived in human history. And that by Greco-Roman historians who were not Christ followers. Even more fascinating are the details of his life that are predicted hundreds of years prior to his birth. How he would be born, how he would be betrayed, how he would die and rise again were all predicted hundreds, if not many hundreds of years prior to his birth. And what this claims is the Bible says that Jesus is the myth that came true. Micah chapter five is one of those passages. It's written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Micah, the prophet, actually predicts the place of his birth. It's so accurate that by the time that Jesus is actually born, about 700 years after this prophecy, the Roman ruler Herod uses this passage as he gathers the wisdom in his kingdom to eradicate or kill all the babies two years old and below so that he can remove any possible ruler that would oppose him, the Messiah. Why would he do that? Well, one of the reasons he does that is because he knows that this prophecy says the child who would be born would be a new king. He would be a new kind of ruler. It says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. You see, Israel needs a new kind of king at this point. In the ancient world, kings were considered to be the source of hope for their nation. They represented strength of their nation, but Israel has had terrible experiences with kings. The very thing that they hoped in, they've been hurt from. From the 
start, God was reluctant to give them a king. God knew that they would be tempted to trust in the strength of the man or the ruler rather than his perfect plan or his perfect love. We all know what it's like to hope in something. We all know what it's like. Maybe even as kids, we can remember what it's like to say, man, I can't wait until I get the thing because once I open it, it's gonna make my life worth living for. And as adults, we do that with jobs and we do that with relationships and we do that with moves and all sorts of things. Well, along comes a man by the name of Micah. He's a country prophet in the eighth century BC before Christ. He served under three failed kings and Yahweh sends him a message to comfort and correct his people. See, Israel is in need, of course, correction at this moment. Their leaders have been seduced by power and money, and they've taught their people to chase after power and money like dogs chasing their tail, round and round. And because they do that, they've neglected to care for the poor. They've neglected to care for the vulnerable in their society, which is what God had commanded them to love their neighbor and to not victimize the poor and the under-resourced. And they cover it up with a bunch of pious religious services. They did their best to jump through the religious hoops and to do the religious deeds, which is why they start asking questions in chapter six, which we read like, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Like, I gotta make it right. I gotta settle the score. It's a scoreboard kind of religion. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or more money that I give or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Now, if you are, you know, some parents kind of just want to offer their firstborn. So this isn't that big of a deal for some. Especially during Christmas vacation. So... The fruit of my body, shall I give it for the sin of my soul? What shall I give to God so I can settle the score? But beneath it all, it was mostly to make themselves feel good. That's where their religious works are coming from. And God just comes through and says, through Micah, he has shown you, O mortal. You know what he was desiring from you. It's simply to do justly to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He's shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I wonder how many of us actually need this kind of course correction today. Just the reminder, take it back to the grassroots. You already know, man. You're talking about what's the Lord's will and this and that and the other, but at the, at the root of it all, it's to love God with all of your heart and to actually care for the people around you. Israel needs correction, but they also need to be comforted. And I wonder how many of us in this room feel like we need to be comforted today. How does God comfort through Micah? I think it's an important question that we ask, especially around the holiday season where some of us feel lonely, some of us feel really 
disappointed, discouraged, alone? How does God offer comfort? Well, he announces through Micah the coming of a new kind of king. And Yahweh says, everything and everyone that you've hoped in thus far will or has let you down, they were never enough. They weren't meant to bear that kind of pressure. But I'm about to send you a new ruler, a new kind of king. And then he gives a few qualities of what that king would be like. I just wanna look at what those are. And the first quality is that this king is an ancient king, verse two. Notice Micah says, verse two, his origin is from antiquity. See, on the one hand, he has an ancient lineage. Jesus, when he would, was born, or this Messiah, when he is to be born, will come from a actual family tree. You can trace his lineage back to the ancient king, even David. And Micah's predicting that he would come from Bethlehem, just like David, which by the way, he would have had to have been born before 70 AD when the Roman government overthrew Israel and eventually the land is given to Palestine. That's a very narrow window of fulfillment that Luke Skywalker can't actually fulfill. But notice secondly, verse two, his origin is from antiquity and from eternity. The ruler that Micah predicts would be born in Bethlehem, but he won't be born like the rest of us. Like us, his human life will begin at conception through a young woman, but unlike us, he actually existed long before the cosmos. For Israel, it's a claim that only Yahweh can make. We see this in many places in scripture. For example, in John. In John's gospel, it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word, the reason for life, the source in the Greek culture was God and was with God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Or like it says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation or has preeminence over all. For by him, all things were created in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, he's the ancient king who existed long before the cosmos. I read a story this past week of uh, this very thing. See, there's a lot of different stories that speak of an ancient king that existed from of old but returns to rule with righteousness and justice. Think King Arthur or Beauty and the Beast or The Lion King even or Lord of the Rings. And the story that I read this past week talks of J.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, who used to take walks with C.S. Lewis when they were professors at Oxford College together. Lewis was an atheist at the time. He was a prolific, brilliant, mythological writer. And Tolkien would try to explain to Lewis that the reason why you love these stories and tales and myths and legends 
is because it points to something deep inside you. Lewis was not just an atheist and an artist, he was also a modern man. So he believed good and evil were just relative. We're here by accident. Everything about us is a product of natural selection. So for him, the stories of a king that returns, the damsel in distress, the dragon that's slain, these are great stories, but they're just fairy tales. So Tolkien, they're walking, and he basically says, here's my theory, Jack, that's what they called him. Here's my theory why you're so moved by these tales. These stories, though they're not true in the sense of being factually true and historically true, they're actually pointing to an underlying reality. They're pointing to something inside of you that you can hearken back to. Some sense that you feel like, oh, that's right in the world. These stories all say, for example, that the world is under an evil spell, that our problems aren't just gonna be eradicated by more education or technology or tolerance. No, there's an evil spell in the world. There's a sorcerer or somebody who has you under the evil spell. All these stories point to that. But secondly, he would say, these stories point to the fact that the material world, the physical world, isn't all there is. There's more than meets the eye. There's a depth in reality. There's a supernatural element in the world, the spiritual realm, not just material. And third, these stories point to the fact that we need sacrificial love. We're looking for sacrificial love. We're not gonna be able to do it ourselves. So Tolkien said, you know what? You might believe this in your head because it's been drilled down to you that we're just here by material, but deep down, you have a sense that there's more to this world than meets the eye. And that we need someone. And that we need sacrificial love to rescue us. And you can't know that with your imagination. And Lewis said, well, that's an interesting theory. But all the old myths and stories, they're lies. In fact, he says something like, they are myths and they're lies through breathed silver or a tongue of silver. Tolkien says, no, but they're not lies. How about this one? The world is under an evil spell, but God sends his son into the world and he's born in the most unlikely place. He's born in a manger in a small country town predicted by a country prophet hundreds of years before his birth. He's not at all the kind of person that you would think would do something, but he takes on the powers. He takes on the evil forces socially, and he takes them on culturally and spiritually, and he takes on the oppressive powers and principalities of the world in the Roman government, and he takes on the demons. And finally, he goes to a cross, and it looks like evil has conquered him, defeated him, and yet he's raised from the dead. And he's bringing together a band of people, and he's renewing their lives. He's doing good work in the world through his followers, and someday, this king returns again to renew the whole world. It's not just another story. It's the underlying reality that all of these stories are ultimately pointing to and that's why it moves you. Lewis says, I've never heard the Christian story told like that before. You're right. It's just like all these other stories but there's something different here. And Tolkien says, no, Jesus Christ is the underlying reality. In other words, 
It's not just a story. It's not just a myth. It's the myth that was true. This king is the ancient king. Secondly, he's the future king. Verse five. It says they will live securely when he comes to be born or enters the world for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. And this is comforting to Israel because they currently don't live securely. They are enslaved to a foreign foreign government and foreign rulers of Assyria. And for the vulnerable and the poor living in slavery, living in periods of injustice, living under power-hungry and money-hungry rulers, this is very good news. This has always been good news to those who lived under oppression. That there's coming a day when a king will set to right everything that is wrong. It was the hope of Israel It was a hope of slavery in the 1800s and 1900s, and it's the hope of those who live under oppression today. It means that this king cares about setting wrongs right. It means that bad news for those who oppress, it's bad news actually for those who oppress the poor and hoard money and power. Proverbs 14 says, if you oppress the poor, you show contempt for their maker, and you give to If you give to the needy, you honor God. This has inspired me again, reminded me again in this season, the need to actually look out for others, to give to others. And by being born in Bethlehem, God identifies with the poor. It shows us a God who loves the downtrodden. Only in Jesus do we see how radically and literally God identifies with the poor and the oppressed. He was born to a poor family in an obscure town in a marginalized and outcast community. And it was to the poor and the marginalized that Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for they shall inherit the earth. And when Micah says his greatness will extend to, his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. It's not toward a nation. He's not saying I'm gonna make the nation great again. He's saying I'm gonna make the world great again. How? By bringing heaven to earth. This is called the new creation. It's the message that brings comfort to these people. Ancient Israel foresaw heaven and earth, God's space and our space, as the twin halves of God's good creation. Rather than rescuing people from earth in order to reach heaven, the creator God would finally bring heaven and earth together in the great act of the new creation. And that would complete the original creative purpose by healing the entire cosmos of its ancient ills. That's what this king is ultimately coming to do. He's not only coming to save souls, he's coming to make the world saved. They believe that God would raise his people from the dead to enjoy and oversee the rescued and renewed creation. And they believed all this because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the new creation is where you'll finally feel at home. I heard a song last night on the way home from our friend's house. Um, 
It was all about how it's so good to be at home for Christmas, for the holidays. And it actually made me feel sad. Do you know why it's so hard to find home in this world? Because your ultimate home comes at the new creation. There you will be safe. There you will dwell in perfect joy and happiness. There you will experience the love that you long for. He will be your peace. There will be no more suffering, no more misery, no more death, for the old order of things will have passed away. You will live with Jesus and be perfectly filled with joy and happiness. He will be your peace. You see, the cross is the event that says the oppressed will now go free but not by becoming the oppressor. It ends the act whereby you overthrow oppression by becoming the oppressor. It's the basis for all nonviolent work in the world. And the new creation is the comfort for all who have experienced oppression. It's the promise of resurrection. Especially if you've lost loved ones and especially when you will lose loved ones in this world. First century Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus, this new creation, had already been launched. The resurrection is launched at the moment of the resurrection, a new creation begins at the resurrection, and this king will be their embodied peace. He will be the perfect fusion between heaven and earth. This was the ancient Jewish hope. It had come true at last, this new kind of king. Therefore, the point was not to go to heaven, but for the life of heaven to arrive on earth. And that's why Jesus taught his followers to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why God says, in verse eight, He has shown you, O mortal, what's good now. This is the work of heaven. What the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Israel's scripture had long promised that God would come back to dwell with his people forever. And the early Christians picked up on this in the verse we just read, that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. That word dwell is the same word used when they were to set up the tabernacle where God would meet with people in the wilderness. In this world, you're in the wilderness and God yet has come to dwell with humanity. That was the lens through which all of Israel saw the hope for the world. And that's why the book of Revelation ends not with souls going up to heaven, but with the new Jerusalem coming down to earth so that God's dwelling is with humans. The whole of creation will be set free. And Micah comforts them in verse four by saying, his greatness will spread on earth as it is in heaven. But lastly, he's not just the ancient king, he's not just the future king, He's also the shepherd king, verse four. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. Imagine how special this phrase is to 
a country prophet, someone who is accustomed to seeing actual shepherds. When's the last time you saw a shepherd? It's hard to actually relate, isn't it? But for this country prophet who's used to watching a shepherd care for his sheep, bend down, feed them, protect them from the wolves that would come and annihilate them, gently guide them and lead them in the path that they were to walk in, correct them, actually break their legs at times when they strayed away and then put them on their neck to walk them back so that they would learn to not leave the shepherd's care. Imagine the good news this is for this prophet. As he realizes this king, yeah, he'll be a powerful king. He'll lead them in the strength of Yahweh. But he won't just be a powerful king. He'll be a caring king. He'll be a shepherd king. He's not a hireling. He's the great shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. It's not by accident that the first people that the angels announced the good news that this king was born in Bethlehem, you should go see him, were who? Shepherds. And he's not just associating with the lowly, though he is. He's also forecasting who he would be. He will be a caring king. He cares about the details in your life. He cares about the job situation, cares about the relationship, cares about the finances, cares about the health, cares about your plans for the holidays, cares about all the things that you are currently wondering, do you care? And when Jesus talked about his death, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My real sheep, they follow me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Yesterday, I read Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter four and five to Nina in our bedroom. Now, don't get the idea that we're super holy and spiritual. Like, it was, doesn't happen every day. It was Saturday, it was just, it was, a, it was a spur of the moment thing. I was in the mood. And I was in Revelation uh, 5 on my Bible reading. So it wasn't even that I was that giving. I was like, I'm going to read my portion of Scripture, babe. Do you want to hear it or not? So, um, so we read it, and man, I teared up because this is what I read. I read about the new creation and the blueprints that John the Apostle sees for the new creation and that no one was worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls in heaven. No one except the good shepherd, the king, the one beside the throne comes along and says, give it to me and he opens it up. And John says, I cried and I cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. And then one of the elders said to me, stop crying, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the ancient future king, the root of David has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four creatures and among the elders. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. That's good news, isn't it? And it helped me in the moment to stop and cease from striving and to know that he is God and to know that he's a caring king. So when Tolkien tells Lewis, hey, when you read the modern kind of parable, the sort of thing that modern critics in the end talk about, you feel like, wow, that's heavy. But when you read and listen to a fairy tale, it gets you. Why? Because he says at the very end, there's this miraculous grace, victory out of the jaws of defeat, usually at the infinite cost of someone else's sacrifice. There's a miraculous grace, it gets you. Why? Because he says, you're getting a glimpse of joy beyond the walls of this world. And it's more powerful than your grief. And then he says, well, Jack, this is the ancient king. This is the future king. And for you and I, this is the shepherd king. So I'd like to close with us reciting the words of Psalm 23, which also point to the good shepherd, the one who multiplies loaves and fish as he lets his followers sit down on green grass and feeds them. So we'll recite Psalm 23 after I pray and then we'll have a moment just to be silent and let the Lord minister to our soul. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your words to us. Thank you for your kindness to us and for your power that works for us. And thank you for your care.